This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Today, Rodrigo Diaz's story comes to a close, sadly, but not before he shows a bit more of that Spanish national hero bravado. This guy's story is an unrelenting tale of power, of influence, of the gain and loss of wealth, of the precariousness of success in medieval Iberia, and as you noticed, it's also a pretty long episode, so let's get into it, shall we? Today's episode, episode 71, is entitled El Cid, Part 5, Valencia. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As we know from this season of the podcast, there's a rich tradition of Arabic poetry around the Muslim world, from the free flow of the lettering, almost almost like a sketch of clouds against a flat-bottomed, empty horizon, to the actual words themselves. I've come to develop a great appreciation for the Arabic language. In just sweeping the internet for information about Arabic, I came across one tweet in particular that kind of nailed it for me. So says at Rosewater, quote, Arabic love poems are on another level. Remembered a line written by Farouk Joade, quote, And if the devil was to ever see you, he'd kiss your eyes and repent, end quote. Like, come on. And the tweets quote there. You know, that's my reaction when I read some of this poetry. It, it's truly on another level. And though the poetry about love is remarkable, Arabic poetry and the poetic tradition is a deep dive into the minds of Arabs, Muslims and non-Muslim alike, throughout history. It's not just love that's magnificently illuminated, it's just life in general, and those experiencers' perspective about what they're living through. On today's episode, I've purposely woven just a bit into the narrative Arabic poetry as I guess my own way of celebrating this newfound bridge of understanding the Arabic people through its language. Now, we live in a world that showing understanding or a mere appreciation for certain things automatically aligns you to that ideology. But for those who may think this way, save it. I just don't play games that involve things being either black or white. I tend to live in the gray areas myself, and this podcast is a product of of living in that gray area of history. Understanding, appreciation, and most importantly, connection is made. And as I thought about how to begin this episode, I realized that a little poetry might do the trick to get this off on the right foot. And as we will be looking at Rodrigo Diaz's final years, which coincides with the ramping up of Almoravid hostilities... A good place to start this would be to look at the Almoravids and how they were moving on fellow Muslim communities in southern Iberia in the early 1090s. See, that same emir who invited on numerous occasions the Almoravids to come to Iberia and help rid the typhus of those pesky northern Christian kingdoms, well, he found himself suddenly looking down the proverbial gun barrel of Almoravid aggression. Yusuf ibn Tashfin, a general and spiritual leader of the Almoravids at the time, was sickened over the last decade or so by the decadence of Andalusian Muslims he saw, and he felt it was time to set Iberia straight once and for all. That emir, 
al-Mutamid of the powerful Taifa of Seville, was quickly deposed and sent off across the Strait of Gibraltar, not as some honored ambassador to the Almoravids. Rather, he was to spend the rest of his life in captivity in modern-day Morocco. And in captivity, he would write, as Fletcher says in the quest for El Cid, quote, a number of moving laments over his lot, which rank among the finest poems in Arabic literature, end quote. So here's one. I wept upon seeing a flock of desert partridges flying past me. They traveled freely, unhampered by jail and fetters. This was not, so God help me, because of envy, but due to my longing that I might be like them, freely moving about, not torn from my family, my heart, not tortured by grief, my eyes, not weeping over lost children. May they enjoy their not being torn from each other, nor may any of them ever grieve or a faraway parent, and may they never live like me, their heart leaping with pain when the jail door opens or the chains rustle. My soul ardently wishes soon to meet death. Let another, not I, love to live with feet in chains. May God protect the partridge and its fledglings. My own fledglings were betrayed by water and by shade. So, to me, this wasn't exactly an open-shut case, a, a black-and-white situation that can be summed up as Christian versus Muslim. Wars are so very, uh, so very often very rare, rarely this or that. In fact, wars can be said to be fought in the gray area where, where biases are used as weapons and reasons become irrelevant. The Almoravids had visited Iberia on a number of occasions already, as we know, but they were officially here to stay. Christians and Muslims alike beware. Under the leadership of, of Alvar Fáñez, Alfonso VI ordered an attack on Ibn Tashfin's forces in Seville, near Almodovar del Rio, but was quickly turned away. If you remember, Fáñez was the cavalry leader who fled the battlefield at Sagrajas in 1086, and then when he returned, he fled Alfonso himself once again, causing a rout and a sloppy defeat at the hands of Ibn Tashfin. Though important, Fletcher writes the following, quote, The campaign is of interest as being the last recorded occasion on which the Cid and King Alfonso had any direct personal dealings, end quote. You know, these personal dealings were by way of a letter to Rodrigo Diaz sent not by Alfonso, but by his wife, Queen Constance. At the time, Rodrigo was laying siege to Lyria on the eastern side of the peninsula, all but begging him to join Alfonso against the Almoravids. Now, after Rodrigo, ever eager to get back in his king's good graces even after all these years, after Rodrigo agreed to join Alfonso, the pettiness of the two men's tenuous relationship boiled over when a gigantic argument over where each man's tents and lodgings could be put, erupted. Fletcher writes, quote, At Ubeda, the king launched a verbal attack on Rodrigo, accusing him of, quote-unquote, many and various things, but untrue ones. He was planning to place him under arrest, but Rodrigo got wind of this and escaped. Prompted by Rodrigo's enemies, Alfonso refused to accept his subsequent protestations of innocence. The king went back to Toledo, and Rodrigo returned to the Levant. Christmas 1091 found him at Morea. End quote. 
So remember, this is immediately following Rodrigo's brilliant maneuvering a year or so earlier when he was able to divert Alfonso's tribute from Valencia's Alcadir into his own pockets. This could very well be the real cause of the argument and not where to pitch tents. In light of Alfonso's renewed anger, Rodrigo visited his old friends in Zaragoza to solidify that support in early 1092, and Al-Musta'in certainly enjoyed the company. After Zaragoza, Rodrigo rode to the court of King Sancho Ramirez of Aragon and negotiated a firm alliance between the two. Now, in this position, he was, as Fletcher says, uh, quote, acting as intermediary in bringing about peace between Zaragoza and Aragon, a triumph of diplomacy, this, because Sancho had conquered Zaragoza's northern marches, end quote. But while Rodrigo was making those connections, Alfonso was making his own. By this time, Valencia was more or less under Rodrigo's influence. Again, Al-Qadir was still in power, but he was paying Rodrigo to not attack him, so, you know. So Alfonso went way out of the box and reached out to maritime powers, such as Genoa and Pisa and Venice. And this is a clear indication as to Alfonso's plans. Alfonso obviously had the land forces, while one of his potential new allies could attack from the sea. But more on that in a bit, though. So as Alfonso settled into a siege of Valencia in 1092 to show Al-Qadir who was boss, some troubling reports from Castile drew him back west. Rodrigo had attacked Castile directly and escaped to Zaragozan territory, loaded down with treasure. Now Fletcher writes, quote, The action was not directed simply at the king. The prime sufferer was Garcia Ordonez, whose county this was. Rodrigo's biographer tells us that he chose to devastate Garcia's lands quote-unquote, because of his enmity and his insult. And there's no reason why we should disbelieve him. The words he used would have had an ampler resonance for his contemporaries than they do for us. Inimicatia implied rather more than the feelings of ill disposition towards someone else. It indicated the active prosecution of malicious intent, for example, in the context of a feud. And dedicus carried meanings of shame, Loss of honor, ridicule, public humiliation, things that 11th century noblemen dreaded. We cannot tell for sure what hurts Rodrigo had in mind. At this period, Count Garcia was the most prominent Castilian magnate. His advice to the king may well have lain, tr- have lain behind the troubles suffered by Rodrigo over the last three years. End quote. And I would I would venture to say that Garcia Garcia Ordonez was actually a part of Rodrigo's very first exile decades before as well. So they're kind of sworn enemies here. Garcia Ordonez was still, after all these years, a serious thorn in Rodrigo's side. And before Rodrigo's sun was set, he was determined to make the man pay for his insults. Ordonez even raised an army against Rodrigo while Rodrigo ravaged and destroyed his land. The Cid ripped open Count Garcia's land holdings and his people, flaying the ineffective Count's lack of ability to defend the county for all to see, especially for King Alfonso VI to see. Now vindicated, Rodrigo again rode confidently back into Zaragoza, loaded with wealth and a newfound and restored sense of honor, while Count Garcia Ordonez 
stood cowering, even with an army at his, be- at his beck and call. He just wouldn't attack. Ordonez would never give the order to attack Rodrigo Diaz. He dared not. And with Alfonso calling off the land invasion of Valencia, his allies would renegotiate their presence off the coast. That is the allies of uh, whoever came. We're not sure uh, Venice or Genoa or Pisa. These allies would renegotiate their presence off the coast with Barcelona up north, who could use a little help against Tortosa at the time. But that's a completely separate story there. Now, when Rodrigo arrived back in friendly territory, word came of the goings-on in Al-Andalus, to the south. With the collapse of Seville, Yusuf ibn Tashfin sent his sons, his son, Muhammad ibn Aisa, to go a-frolicking across Andalusian lands in a bid for some good old-fashioned conquest. And conquer he did. Between January and September of 1092, ibn Aisa had taken control of Murcia, Aleda, or excuse me, Aledo, Denia, Hativa, and Alcira. Now, this is where it gets a little close for comfort here, as Alcira, Fletcher points out, is only 22 miles south of Valencia itself. And what's more, Valencian nobility had, as Fletcher says, quote-unquote, conspired to call in Almoravid help to rid themselves of Al-Qadir. Now, a Muslim nobleman named Ibn Jahaf made a move, feeling a bit more confident with the Almoravids merely a, a hard day's ride away, forced the highly unpopular Al-Qadir to escape. It's, it's actually said he tried to escape dressed as a woman, which is kind of funny. Only for the humiliated despot to be caught and executed on sight. Ibn Jahaf was now the ruler of Valencia, the coup having been a great success. And to boot, Fletcher states that Al-Qadir received a little revenge his way when the man who murdered him directly, personally, was none other than the son of Ibn al-Hadidi, who al-Qadir had ordered executed back in 1075 when he ruled tyrannically over Toledo. This al-Qadir guy was a piece of work, it sounds like. So the situation in the Levant went from al-Qadir sending Alfonso Valencian dollars for protection to al-Qadir sending Rodrigo Diaz Valencian dollars to not attack to a coup that placed Valencia, more or less, in the pocket of the Almoravids, paying Valencian dollars to neither King Alfonso VI nor to Rodrigo Diaz. When Alfonso heard of this, his mood soured, but he stayed put in Toledo thinking things over. But when El Cid heard of this, he immediately laid siege to Cibola, just nine miles north of Valencia, which, when he took it, he would use as a staging area for further action. And just see the difference in the two men. In July of 1093, Cibola was Rodrigo's, and Cibola had been fortified and outfitted as a staging area, as I said, for a siege that commenced that month, a siege of the powerful Valencia. Now, Rodrigo Diaz knew the area quite well since he'd spent a large majority of his exiled adulthood bouncing around the area's uh, lush, forested hillsides and he quickly began to harass the fields and villages and roads around Valencia. His tactic was to slowly wear down the morale, while also stealing much-needed supplies, pumping in and out of the busy marketplaces and docks of Valencia. 
No firm evidence proves Rodrigo's alliance with Aragon paid off during this siege, but there are interesting notes in the record about Aragonese action in northern Valencian territory, which may have contributed to Rodrigo's campaign directly or indirectly. Either way, Rodrigo was able to gain near-complete control over the lands surrounding Valencia very quickly. But in September of 1093, just a couple months after the siege began, the new Valencian emir, Ibn Jahaf, had his prayers answered when his call for Almoravid reinforcement arrived. Several thousand strong, this Almoravid army stood its ground just south of Valencia, the city, and embarrassingly outnumbered, Rodrigo Diaz, too, stood his ground. The man's unbelievable. And unbelievably, the Almoravids inexplicably pulled back and did not attack Rodrigo. In fact, it seems that Yusuf ibn Tashfin needed those forces for his 1094 conquest of Badajoz that was fast approaching. And maybe ibn Tashfin thought that Rodrigo would fall back if faced with a grand show of force. But at the end of the day, ibn Tashfin might have felt that, given his plans for the rest of Al-Andalus, he couldn't spare the manpower over little Valencia. Strangely, though, at the beginning of 1094, Ibn Tashfin sent an army of equal force to Valencia with full intent to attack. But when they arrived, they saw a starving Valencia, now more or less under a different banner. See, over the winter, Rodrigo Diaz, now a master of siege warfare, had muscled, albeit patiently, to just outside the walls of the city and was poised to take control. By May, peace negotiations began. And on Thursday, June 15th, 1094, Rodrigo Diaz, El Cid, El Campeador, rode into Valencia, a conqueror. He took his place in one of the grandest palaces there and then sent for his family to join him. Now, Fletcher writes, quote, Here is the Poema de Mio Cid, again, describing the arrival of Doña Jimena, his wife, and her children at Valencia shortly after the conquest. The poema states, My Cid and they went to the fortress. There he led them up to the highest place. Then fair eyes gaze out on every side. They see Valencia, the city as it lies, and turning the other way their eyes behold the sea. They look on the farmlands, wide and thick with green, and all the other things which give delight. They raise their hands to give thanks to God for all that bounty, so vast and so splendid. End quote. Now, Valencia, then as it still is today, is quite a sight to behold. Fletcher even quotes a later Muslim poet, Ibn Az Zakak, who wrote about Valencia in this way. He says, quote, Valencia, when I think of her and of her wonders, is the fairest of the land. The best witness for her is herself, because her beauty is apparent to the eye. Her Lord has dressed her in a robe of beauty marked by two borders, the sea and the river, end quote. To be compared to a woman, knowing what we know of Arabic love poetry, seems the highest of subjects to be compared to. Valencia was seen as far more than a superior Mediterranean port city along the Levant. Rather, it was as beautiful to behold as the loveliest woman. Fletcher adds for comparison, quote, how the conquerors from bleak Castile must have gasped as they looked upon the ordered yield of that astonishingly abundant landscape. The paddy fields of rice, 
the lustrous greens of the citrus groves, the checkered board of fruit and vegetable plots, further to the west on the rising ground, the vineyards, olive groves, and cornfields, beyond them the pine forests on the slopes of the mountains, the garden has its lake, the Albufera, a shallow lagoon covering about 25 square miles immediately to the south of the city, divided from the sea by a narrow strip of sand dunes dotted with pines, source of food in the shape of wild fowl and eels, source of delight to the eye, particularly after the rain, when the atmosphere becomes pearly and translucent, a watercolorist's dream, end quote. Sheesh, even historian Richard Fletcher's waxing poetic there. Yeah, so Valencia must have had that effect on people. But Valencia was truly a wonder of a city, even in its own time, and the dishonored and disenfranchised exile, despite his numerous attempts to return home, overcame decades of warfare and hardship only to rise to the top of such a place. Rodrigo Diaz was now leader of Valencia, he oversaw an impressive amount of trade that flowed in and out of the city, as if the city itself were a set of lungs, feeding the rest of Iberia with much-needed goods and luxuries. Pumping in and out were silks and foodstuffs, ideas and technologies, and arts and culture. Now, at the helm of such a city, it wouldn't be long before Rodrigo Diaz would face opposition to his rule. Fletcher writes, quote, Rodrigo Diaz could have spared no time for reflection on the civil administration of his new conquest. In the summer of 1094, the first imperative was defense. Yusuf ibn Tashfin had made good on his plans to conquer Badajoz, and with the whole of Al Andalus under Almoravid control, Valencia, Valencia was simply the next box to check. Ibn Tashfin's nephew, Muhammad, was ordered to take a large force east and capture Rodrigo Diaz alive. Rodrigo started calling in some of those favors, beginning with Aragon, but his ally, King Sancho Ramirez from, from Aragon, had died just weeks earlier on June 4th. And the new king, Pedro I, though agreed to terms with his father's one-time ally, had not the sway of his father, not yet, and was powerless at this point to send Rodrigo help at the time. Catalonia was out because Rodrigo had already thoroughly humiliated Ramon Berenguer there. Zaragoza answered his call, but it was hardly what Rodrigo needed against the Almoravids, though welcome. Which left King Alfonso VI. The problem was that even if Alfonso had wanted to send help, he, he really couldn't send any help of, of, you know, any real number. Toledo was also under immense pressure from the Almoravid force led by Yusuf ibn Tashfin himself. Fletcher reports that Alfonso had already lost territories and cities such as Lisbon, Santarum, and Sintra. But Alfonso was able to send a small contingent to aid Valencia in the hopes that Valencia would at least hold out in Christian hands, Rodrigo or not. As Ibn Tashfin's nephew and the large Almoravid army approached Valencia, Rodrigo made the difficult choice to turn on his Valencian people. Yeah, Against realistic estimates hovering around 25,000 Almoravid soldiers, Rodrigo needed as little distraction as possible inside those walls, so he threatened that if the Almoravids laid siege, he would execute each and every Muslim citizen of Valencia. Fletcher calls them, quote-unquote, panicky measures 
for defense, but they also serve as arrows pointing to some of that El Cid, hero of, the, of La Reconquista legend emerging. Rodrigo ordered all weapons and tools to be confiscated, uh, quote-unquote, on pain of death and sequestration of pov- uh, property. He banished criminals outside the walls to get them out of the way, and he tricked able-bodied men into the defense of the city. When Ramadan finished in early October of 1094, the Almorvids could be seen outside the strong walls of Valencia. The Historia Rodriki says the following, quote, The Almorvid army lay about Valencia for ten days and nights. Every day they used to go round the city, shrieking and shouting with a motley clamor of voices and filling the air with their bellowing. And they often used to fire arrows at the tents and dwellings of Rodrigo and his soldiers. But Rodrigo, stout of heart as ever, comforted and strengthened his troops in a manly fashion and constantly prayed devoutly to the Lord Jesus Christ that he would send divine aid to his people. There came a day when the enemy were, as usual, going about the city, yelling and skirmishing, confident in the belief that they would capture it. When Rodrigo, the invincible warrior, courageously made a sortie from the city, accompanied by his well-armed followers, they shouted at the enemy and terrified them with threatening words. They fell upon them, and a major encounter ensued. By God's clemency, Rodrigo defeated all the Almoravids. Thus he had a victory and triumph over them, granted to him by God. As soon as they were defeated, they turned their backs in flight. A multitude of them fell to the sword. Others, with their wives and children, were led captive to Rodrigo's headquarters. Rodrigo's men seized all their tents and equipment, among which they found innumerable money of gold and silver and precious textiles. They thoroughly plundered all the wealth they found there. Rodrigo and his men were greatly enriched thereby, with much gold and silver, most precious textiles, chargers, palfreys, and mules, and various sorts of weaponry. They were amply stocked with quantities of provisions and treasures untold. So, yeah, much of that is, you know, some grandiose pronouncements, making things a bit more legend-like than probably real. But the nuts and bolts of it are there. Rodrigo led a sortie, defeated the Almoravid besiegers, they fled, and he and his knights filled their coffers to overflowing. It's kind of that simple, but it's, it's also more than just a big victory. See, the Battle of Cuarte, as it came to be known, as Fletcher writes, quote-unquote, was the event of the year. Accounts and records and charters from that year date themselves by this event, in fact. It was a strategically brilliant victory that once again shows the, the leagues above El Cid was to even the likes of the great Yusuf Ibn Tashfin. Quote, Rodrigo had shown that the Almoravids were not invincible, end quote, says Fletcher. Everyone, and I mean everyone, assumed Valencia was as good as Almoravid by 1095, but Rodrigo Diaz, once again, acting as the living legend he was, El Campeador, the champion of the battlefield, had proven the world wrong. So with the Almoravids hightailing it south, Rodrigo could now devote the necessary energy and time to running his new territory and city. But Fletcher states, quote, there was nothing pretty or romantic about the Cid's rule in Valencia, end quote. It was bare-bones subsistence at first, as Rodrigo had just torched all his farmlands the year before trying to take the city. But things leveled off, 
and his attentions turned to fortifying Valencia's far-flung outposts. And this is where King Pedro I of Aragon comes back into the picture, in 1097. Pedro and Rodrigo rode south together to regain some lost Valencian territory and to re-garrison some of those forts Rodrigo had used years before. But Muhammad, the same nephew of Ibn Tashfin, was patrolling the area in force. Rodrigo must have smiled as this guy was the same Muhammad who, had, who he had defeated at Cuarta just under two years before to take control of Valencia. But Muhammad had grown as a leader and as a strategist in his own right, and he actually outmaneuvered Rodrigo and Pedro, gaining the upper hand, at least at the beginning. Fletcher quotes the Historia Rodriki about this account. He says, quote, Rodrigo rode among his troops delivering a rousing harangue to raise their morale. Then battle was joined, end quote. The Historia says, quote, At the middle of the day, the king and Rodrigo with all the Christian army fell upon them and engaged them in strength. At length, by God's clemency, they defeated them and turned them in flight. Some were killed by the sword, some fell in the river, and enormous numbers fled into the sea where they were drowned. End quote. So after this victory, small skirmishes and sieges occupied Rodrigo's time over the next couple years, but in 1098 we would see Rodrigo, now fairly old for, for the time, well into his 50s that is, affirming his station as the leader of the Levant when he turns on the Almoravid stronghold of Murviedro. Besieging Murviedro from the land was his specialty, but there might have also been Rodrigo's first foray into diplomacy outside of the peninsula. That is, he may well have reached out to maritime powerhouses that Alfonso attempted to hire years earlier against him. However, as Fletcher states, quote, If he did, it is a fair guess that his request was turned down because Italian fleets were already committed in the eastern Mediterranean, assisting the armies of the First Crusade. End quote. Yeah. As the likes of Bohemond of Toronto are blazing their ways across the Holy Land, El Cid was still blazing his way around Iberia. This, however, would be a little different of a siege, though. In fact, all it would take to take this nearly impenetrable fortress high upon a coastal rock would be rumors, stories. Much like the Norman Roger of Tosny, called the Moor Eater, if you remember, some 80 years earlier. Some scary stories about Rodrigo's legend were enough to force a full surrender. Well, the fact that Murviedro's leader pleaded for extensions of time as he called for Almoravid reinforcements caused Rodrigo to finally threaten to burn alive and torture any defenders that remained there when he eventually took it, well, those who were stupid or stubborn enough to stay were shackled and forced marched to the slave markets in Valencia, and Rodrigo and Pedro rode triumphantly back north. But all this campaigning over the last year would come at a truly devastating loss for Rodrigo, which might lend credence to his horrific threats to burn folks alive and torture them. See, during one of these battles with the Almoravids on this campaign, Rodrigo's only son, Diego Rodriguez, died on August 15th. He was his only male heir. 
You know, and this is the point in Rodrigo's story that we can finally, finally start to wrap things up. When he arrived back in Valencia, he eventually married off his daughters. His daughter, Cristina Rodriguez, married Ramiro Sanchez of Pamplona and would give birth to a future king of Navarre, King Garcia Ramirez. Now, Maria Rodriguez's marriage was more political and may, serve, may have served as a sincere attempt to mend fences between Valencia and Barcelona, I mean, virtual neighbors, geographically. Maria married Count Ramon Berenger III of Barcelona, a man who had been humbled, nay, humiliated by Rodrigo years earlier. And as part of the dowry, uh, the Count received Tizona, the legendary sword, the firebrand of the Reconquista. And circling back to the beginnings of Rodrigo's story, the story of Los Infantes, or the princes, if you remember from a few episodes back, the princes who married and subsequently tortured Rodrigo's daughters, uh, according to the legend, well, pretty sure that's pure fantasy. And it serves as a lesson to approach these thousand-year-old histories with some level of caution, but it doesn't mean we should throw the entire text out the window, though. And as I thought about how to end this episode, I began reflecting on the things that allowed a figure like Rodrigo Diaz to enter into the legend of national hero that he is today. Mahmoud Darwish, often seen as a prime representative of Palestinian poetry, who passed away recently in 2008, once wrote the following, quote, Maybe the moon is beautiful only because it is far. End quote. We've taken a somewhat deep dive into a far-off, nearly mythical land of Iberia, separated by a space of a thousand years. From this vantage point in the early 21st century, the times of Rodrigo Diaz might as well be found in the fantasy section of your local library or bookstore. Now, this is by no means meant to diminish the sagas of Spanish national epics and legendary figures. Every single community deserves to rest its collective heads on a, on a pillow of legends and myths. These enrich our understanding of who we are as a people. As of this recording, Americans, just this week, celebrated its 246th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, a symbolic and literal throwing off the shackles of a far-off and disconnected monarch who claims some divine right to bend his countrymen and women into his subjects. Now, Americans celebrated its national heroes, men and women such as George and Martha Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John and Abigail Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and so on. The generation that turned us from subjugation into sovereign citizens. We celebrate these near-mythical people despite what their histories entailed. Yes, the Washingtons and Jefferson, for instance, they own slaves, but does that strip them of the heroic deeds and intense losses they suffered on our behalf two and a half centuries later? The UK has national and folk heroes they remember as well. King Arthur, Edmund Ironside, Watt Tyler, William Wallace, Guy Fawkes, Sir Francis Drake. Japan has Miyamoto Musashi. India, besides Siddhartha Gautama and, and Mahatma Gandhi, they have Ram Singh Malam, 
China's Wen Tianqing, Lady Xing, and Mao Zedong. Hercules, Leonidas, Parmenides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Aristophanes, Euripides. Take a breath. Alexander the Great, Homer, Pericles, Salon, Hippocrates, Archimedes, my goodness, Greece. Save some for the rest of us. The Prophet Muhammad holds a place beyond mere national hero status, but still holds a place in Islam's adherence akin to hero, one could argue. Now, how can we leave out names such as Simon Bolivar in Venezuela, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Panama? I mean, there are national currencies named after the guy. Even the Maori leader, Hone Heke, who brought down the British flag not once, not twice, but three times, has national hero status in New Zealand. Listen, the list of national and folk heroes is a very, very long one. And that's not the point of this little tangent here. Each generation, it seems, wherever you are in the world, tends to have a hero, a person who rises above the trials of the times and emerges a leader, someone who leads a fundamental change or awakening of the community to some injustice or hardship that must be changed. So what was it, getting back to our subject here, what was it that Rodrigo Diaz changed? What did he add to what would become the Spanish identity? Because that's really what a national hero is, right? A person who adds to the collective identity or even defines the collective identity of the community. Someone, again, someone who helps define what each individual can relate to about his or her community's culture. As an American, we can collectively, across races, religions, and cultures within, identify to an extent with people like George Washington, who exemplifies the tenacity of one's convictions, like Thomas Jefferson, who exemplifies the very idea of what it is to be an enlightened free thinker, like Martin Luther King Jr., who exemplifies a sense of common ground amongst strangers, like Teddy Roosevelt, who exemplifies the indomitable spirit of a human and the drive we have toward greatness on any scale. So what does Rodrigo Diaz say about the Spanish identity? Well, listen, I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm not Spanish. And though I took three years of Spanish in high school, that doesn't mean I can speak on behalf of an entire nation, right? So I can only take what I know about my own national and folk heroes and try to make sense of it. And the first place I'd look is how he's represented in Spanish culture. Visually, he has breathtaking statues around the world, actually. That's right, around the world. But let's start with the one in the Plaza de España in Valencia, Spain. See, in Spain, there's a tourist trail known as the Way of El Cid, or Camino del Cid. And there are many statues along this path in Camino en Vivar, Bergos, and Mecareyes, I think is how you pronounce it, Caleruega, and El Pollo del Cid. The one in Valencia, Spain, shows a proud, stern-faced man with short, curly hair and a curly beard. A cross hung around his neck, astride a horse holding up a flag, he is, not the horse, holding up a flag with one hand. This, of course, is a nod to the spirit of the Cid, as his Christian Iberian name as far back as the 11th century was El Campeador, which strictly translated, translates to professor of the camp, but loosely means the expert of the battlefield, or simply the champion. 
This statue, ironically, designed and originally sculpted by American Anna Hyatt Huntington back in 1929, serves as the basis for a number of copies sculpted for parks around the world, including statues in Buenos Aires, San Diego, and San Francisco, though Huntington herself made a second copy for the city of Seville in Spain. But the one I find most compelling, the statue that is, as the Lonely Planet website says, quote, on the north side of the Puente de San Pablo looms a romanticized statue of El Cid, the 11th century mercenary whose tomb lies in the town's cathedral, end quote. Now, this particular statue of El Cid, it, it kind of takes my breath away, to be honest. I think it's one of the coolest statues around, personally. Rodrigo Diaz, El Cid, El Campeador, is seen in a much different light than Huntington's. This statue is referred to as the equestrian statue of El Cid and is located in Burgos, Spain, his hometown. And again, copies can be found as far away as San Diego, California. El Cid's horse, head down, seems to be charging into battle. The details of the muscles show not only the artist's skill, but it also shows the horse taking the first powerful steps of a gallop one front leg reaching up and out for the next step, almost standing in the horse's stirrups, seeming almost as gargantuan as the steed itself, is the man himself, Rodrigo Diaz. However, Lonely Planet's description nailed it on one account. This version of Rodrigo is very much romanticized. Focusing on the man himself, the intricate carvings of his mailed armor on his sleeves and thighs is impressive, but the cape billowing out behind him gives him a modern superhero look. His head is crowned by the typical pointed metal helmet worn for battle at the time, his eyes below its brim staring determinedly straight ahead. In one hand, he holds the reins to this horse, but in his right hand, he holds Tizona, that legendary sword he earned late in life in the direction of his gaze, as if calling his band of trusted knights to follow him into the fray. But most striking about this statue is his beard. At first glance, I look at it and recall images of bearded Vikings, which is strange if, if that was the intent, though Iberia was hardly immune to Scandinavian raids, Muslim and Christian lands alike. Beyond that, the, the beard is huge. It just seems as if, as if it's deliberately challenging the size and scope of the horse itself. And other images of El Cid show shorter curly hair, beard or otherwise, but when comparing Rodrigo's stone beard here to the horse's mighty mane, well, I can't help but think that the artist purposely switched the two. The horse's mane is the curly one, while Rodrigo's stone beard cascades smoothly down his chest and across his midsection. Could this be a deliberate attempt to blur the lines between the man and his animal? Is this a comment on the animalistic tendencies men tend to adopt in warfare or in the defense of himself or his family? In my estimation, there's an undeniable blurring of the lines between the two mighty creatures in this masterpiece. Tizona, again, pointing forward and billowing cape behind him, the exclamation points to the piece. And this is how the Spanish remember Rodrigo Diaz. At the end of the day, does the reality of a legend actually matter if the symbolism energizes and motivates his or her people? Sure, historical accuracy is, in fact, crucial 
when studied for patterns and whatnot, but, but legends don't exist in the details. Legends exist, it seems, at, at a 30,000-foot view. Legends exist above academic scrutiny. Identity as we know these days is a tricky thing. I think Western civilization here in the early 21st century is, is struggling with that very topic. But, but notice the things around you that you inexplicably or subconsciously orbit your identity around. You'll find those things despite the details you hear on the news or in the daily interactions with people or, or on social media. Despite those things, you'll find your legends never really change. They are set in stone, much like El Cid of Burgos, etched meticulously out of stone to help shape and guide a nation's identity. The details tell us that Rodrigo Diaz fought for and against Christian and Muslims alike. He defeated numerous Muslim armies, Almoravid and Valencian alike, but he also defended Muslim communities too, such as Zaragoza, arguably next to his kings Sancho II and Alfonso VI. Rodrigo's biggest supporter and employer. Much of his adult life was spent on the run, in a constant state of survival, all the while keeping his band of loyal knights nearby. I realize so much of Spain's history revolves around this idea of la Reconquista, when Christians kicked the Moors out of Iberia once and for all. And though it could arguably have begun during El Cid's own lifetime, but I'm not sure if he's quite the hero of the Reconquest as he is maybe remembered for. He stands as a figure pulled in many directions. I say many and not two, because oftentimes Christians fought against Christians and, again, Muslims fought against Muslims. Things weren't so black and white as the history books tend to lead us to believe. But for the last time here, I'll ask you, does that even matter, those details? Legends beg to be applied to every age that follows it. And El Cid's legend has lingered for almost 1,000 years because it has the ability to be applied to many different situations and ages. And today we live in a world where you're either one thing or another, it seems. I mean, no one is allowed, really, to hold views in other ideological camps. At least that's what it feels like. It feels like there's no gray area with the insufferable whiners in our world these days. But I'm walking away from El Cid's story with a profound sense of admiration for not only the man, but the legend as well. Was the guy perfect? Good grief, no. Am I ready to grow a waist-length beard, jump on my mighty steed, and storm across Indiana, taking cities and other swaths of land, fighting for the highest bidder? Of course not. But I think El Cid's story is so powerful because it stands as a reminder that life isn't lived in one of two camps. Life is lived in the gray, the blurred areas that share ideas from different perspectives. Rodrigo Diaz fought and defended the highest bidder, because that was what allowed him to survive, let alone thrive. However, El Cid helped hold off the enemies of native Iberians, of which he was one. Zaragozans needed defending, El Cid defended them against his own Christian king. The mighty Almoravids swept northward toward Valencia, and El Cid defended his home. I don't know. Do I claim to be right? Am I asserting that your takeaways about El Cid are wrong if they differ? Absolutely not. But I invite you to look at legends in your own communities or nations and derive something useful from them. 
I look at Rodrigo Diaz as a survivor, and El Cid as a defender of one's own. Do these negate the other? No. No, they don't. But if they did, would that even matter? Listen, I realize that I devolved into a bit of rambling here, so I'll wrap a nice neat bow on this season and prepare to move on. But we will see the seductive draw of nations to continue to create their own legends as a rallying point, a maypole of sorts, to gather their cultures around. Understanding where your neighbors are mentally, emotionally, spiritually, principally, much like streetlights, these offer the crucial glue that holds a people together. That glue is expectation, predictability, and understanding between each other, whether we've ever spoken or not. El Cid is that for Spain. King Arthur, maybe, for England. George Washington, to the good old United States. Our heroes aren't perfect. But maybe, again, as Mahmoud Darwish said, quote, maybe the moon is beautiful only because it is far, end quote. Maybe the distance of time is what makes these men and women legends. Fletcher writes, quote, contemporaries recognized that in Rodrigo's passing, the world had lost a hero. Ibn Bassam, who detested him, wrote of him that, quote, this man the scourge of his time, by his appetite for glory, by the prudent steadfastness of his character, and by his heroic bravery, was one of the miracles of God. End quote. Rodrigo's biographer ended his account of him as follows, quote, While he lived in this world, he always won a noble triumph over his enemies. Never was he defeated by any man. End quote. And the chronicler of Mayazes, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in Poitou, noted under his entry for the year 1099 that, quote, in Spain, at Valencia, Count Rodrigo died. This was a great grief to the Christians and a joy to their pagan enemies. End all quotes. Then again, maybe the distance of time creates legends for most heroes, while a few are immortalized while they live. Rodrigo Diaz died on July 10th, 1099, in Valencia. But the story didn't end there. Doña Jimena, his wife, had her hands full as the Almoravids were ramping up for another go at Valencia. But we'll save her story for when we return to Iberia after we discuss the goings-on leading up to and through the First Crusade. And speaking of moving on, up next, we will be heading back to the year 1066. That's right, we're heading back to the British Isles. There is a story unfolding while Rodrigo Diaz rode across Iberia and the Almoravids invaded. Our history books simply, at least on this side of the pond, simply say something like, quote, in the year 1066, William the Conqueror defeated the English king at the Battle of Hastings, thus conquering England and changing its history forever. This has been historically referred to as the Norman Conquest of England. End quote. Yeah, well, strike that. When Duke William of Normandy woke up the next day, 
He looked across a devastating battlefield at Hastings and realized that these English, yeah, they weren't going to simply roll over. Throughout the last six and a half decades, the English had suffered enough from invasionary forces from Denmark to Normandy to Norway. This newest invasion was simply the next invasion, and they would not go quietly into that good night. That's for damn sure. On the next season, we flesh out the Norman conquest of England. No, scratch that. On the next season, we flesh out the long and painful and devastating English resistance to the Norman conquest of England, which will not conclude until well after William the Conqueror's death. And I can't wait to tell you about it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening.